the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Have a very special interview coming up. I've dedicated uh, two segments to it. I'll go as long as the conversation goes. James Rosen, who is the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax, has a new book out. It's called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, uh, Regnery Publishing We're going to talk about that book. I've spent the last uh, couple of days finishing reading it. It's really extraordinary about Justice Scalia and his uh, early life, his um, uh, early career, and then his ascension to the Supreme Court. That's where it stops, Um, which is reminds me, by the way, of my friend uh, John Cribb, who wrote the uh, rail splitter about um, uh, Lincoln and uh, all the way up until Lincoln decides to run for president. Um, But the difference is the Scalia book is a biography. The other uh, Cribb's book is a uh, is a historical fiction. So a uh, very interesting. We'll talk with James Rosen in a moment. Uh, but first, what you need to know today is what you need to know is about the archives, the United States archives. And they are about how the archivist of the United States is a political hack, a political hack. Now, here's why this is interesting. Not it's not interesting because there's a political hack in government. What's interesting is the is the ongoing exposure of otherwise what you'd call ministerial jobs, jobs that are supposed to be done by people that, you know, care about the archives. But once you go from the archives being a place where the president drops his papers to the archives being playing a role in choices on what you take, I think the, I think the uh, Library of Congress, another one of these entities actually purchased some of the Black Lives Matter notes from that historic organization, Black Lives Matter from five years ago that's now defunct. But so here's the here's Colleen Shogan, Colleen Shogan, who is the executive director or executive. I guess she's a VP of the White House Historical Association, and she's being nominated to serve as the archivist. And she says in her application, it's a confirmation required job. I think it's a term of years, like 10 years or or maybe it's maybe it's a, 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 a lifetime tenure, but it's a longer time. It's not just like a two year term. And in her test, in her applications and all, she said she would not turn over her Twitter feed, uh, because all of the tweets were about her dog, her, uh, Pennsylvania sports teams and personal stuff. Well, this was a mistake. This was a mistake because she found herself in front of Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri and Josh Hawley went through and I don't know how they had the Wayback machine or whatever. And they were able to look at her tweets. They had to do with hating Trump. They had to do with pro uh, uh, far left wing positions. They were some nasty personal stuff. And so she got grilled and basically got told you lied to us. Now, my point here is I have no great affection for the archivist, of the United States, the previous man who uh, left the job and the reason why it's open had been archivist for a long time, and he was quietly encouraging people who uh, were hoping that the Equal Rights Amendment 
would be ratified, even though it failed and it's out of time. He was quietly or not so quietly encouraging them to submit it to him because as the archivist, he was the last step in an amendment to the bill of, uh, to the constitution because once he got it, he could put it into the constitution. Now, this was always silly to me, but because we found him acting politically partisan or at least having positions on issues, but acting politically, we actually helped encourage the Trump Department of Justice to put out an, an, a, a uh, ruling that said the archivist has no role, has no right, cannot accept out-of-time ERA applications. And so we actually went to a lot of trouble to make sure that people understood that the archivist was out of line. And ultimately, he retired. He'd been there a long time. Well, the new woman that's been nominated, this new person nominated, this happens to be a woman, she's clearly, clearly a partisan hack. I, and I, I think that term was used. Maybe I should be a little more generous. She clearly is someone who is playing partisan politics and hardball and hardball. But two points. One, isn't it interesting now to find out how, how regularly uh, they put people in these positions that are political hacks? But second, if you watch the coverage of her, of her appearance before the Senate committee where Josh Holly grilled her, the coverage is all the headline. Here's one headline. Biden pick for U.S. archivist caught up in controversy over missing presidential documents. That's not what she's caught up in. She's not caught up in any of that. That's not her issue. She works over at the White House Historical Society. That's not it at all. What she's actually caught up in is she's getting criticized for lying about her Twitter feed. So she's, I, I don't know, she'll probably still make it, to be honest. I mean, I, she's probably going to still get through. I don't know if everyone, if anyone is really going to fight for it. But uh, why it is that we put people in those positions, isn't there a historian who's not, and maybe this is the fact, This is maybe this is the reality. Maybe this is what I have to bring my head around. And maybe this is what you need to know. If you think fake news is being served up every single day, and it is, so is fake history. Why would the same people intellectual types who think they know everything who run our journalism and run our newspapers and, and TV. Many of them are become historians and become political scientists. I saw that guy Sabato, you know, he's been over at UVA uh, for years and years and years. He's supposed to be this great uh, expert, Larry Sabato on politics and polling. And he just was rejoicing that they hired Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney, that she's going to be this great, she's about a four-term four congresswoman? Other than her last name, is she supposedly, is she an expert? No, she's an expert because she blasted Trump. She's an expert on things because she blasted Trump. So I guess one more fruit of the Trump era is the exposure of fake history, and as uh, just like fake news. And therefore, when you see the archivist is uh, so blatantly uh, a, a political player, I won't call her a hack again. You just say to yourself, I guess that's how these always are, how this always is. And what you have to do is suspend your belief that any of these people are actually going to be serious and just realize they're coming at it from a viewpoint. The viewpoint is going to be to, to be against the right, against conservatives. It seems like a lot of the time they're just against the country. But certainly they're partisan political players, and I suppose they always were. It's just we uh, lied to each other about it or we hid it from each other. But I hope she doesn't get confirmed. I hope she gets blocked fully. I hope she doesn't get that position. I think that it would be terrible. And it, again, it would be another example 
of the institutions that you can't have trust in. So good, good. Uh, by the way, oh, by the way, watch the video. Watch the video of Josh Hawley uh, asking her about her tweets. And here's the thing. Um, when you coach a witness or when you coach, a, in this case, a nominee, you give them a phrase that they have to use over and over again. In this case, her response is, my tweets, my Twitter feed is my personal capacity or some phrase like that. And she repeats it. The problem is she repeats it uh, without any emotion or any nuance. And so you can tell she's just stonewalling. And that's exactly what Holly jumps on. You know, what you have to do is say, well, uh, I just want to say um, uh, the tweets are in my own personal capacity. And then he asks again, do you mean, are you saying that, uh, is it, I, you know, I don't know the specific one you're saying, but, uh, you know, they're my, they're on my personal opinion. But she just went, rut, 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 the same thing over and over again. It's a little bit like, I hate to say this, when people plead the fifth and they say, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. You, you want to answer in a way that lets you sound not like you're defensive. And so she sounded defensive like she was stonewalling, and she was. And she just got uh, pummeled by Josh Hawley for it. So what you need to know is all these institutions now are corrupted. Maybe they always were, but they're blatantly and obviously corrupted, not even hiding it. And second, watch the media spin. They're blaming it on the presidential documents. No, she's on the hot seat because she lied and because she's a partisan hack. Oh, I did it again. I don't know her. I never met her. Maybe she's a lovely person, but her her Twitter feed and her uh, handling of things sure looks like a partisan player. All right, we'll take a break. We come back. As I mentioned, James Rosen, his book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. We'll talk with him. Be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I've been looking forward, as my listeners know, I love books and I love reading. I've been looking forward to speaking with James Rosen. He's the chief White House correspondent at Newsmax. You've seen him. He's been a, a journalist uh, over Fox News, uh, New York Times. He's appeared there all over the place. Um, he's the author of a couple other books, an earlier one on John Mitchell um, and uh, one on uh, Dick Cheney, uh, which is an interesting one and um, to me. But Regnery has a new book out, and the new book by James James Rosen is called Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Welcome, uh, James Rosen. How are you, sir? Real fun to be with you. Thank you, Ed. Well, it's great to have you. So first, um, I, I know sort of the answer because I talked to Regnery publisher is a friend of mine, Tom Spence. I know the answer that um, when you started this, it was going to be a biography. And, and then it turns out there was more to write. So, so but tell me about why it's 36 to 86. I mean, this is really... Before he's, I don't know, famous. I mean, he was well, well known in legal circles. But how'd you end up having to split the the, the period? My first uh, mission was to write a concise biography of Antonin Scalia. Uh, but the more I dug into the story, the more original documents in Scalia's own writing that I found, the more incredible stories people told me. And I just realized that this man lived such a consequential uh, life even before he became a a Supreme Court justice, that it really needed two volumes uh, to really chronicle Antonin Scalia's uh, life and career uh, sufficiently. There are two existing biographies of Scalia, one of which he cooperated with, the other not at all, 
And both came out in the same place, fairly openly contemptuous mm-hmm. of the justices' jurisprudence and conduct. So my book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, uh, covers the first 50 years of uh, Antonin Scalia's life and ends with him sitting down on the Supreme Court. And this is the book that Scalia fans and all students interested in an accurate history of American law and society have been waiting for. It's, again, James Rosen is our guest, the chief White House correspondent over at Newsmax, and uh, the book is from Regnery, uh, which, of course, is a, a, a subsidiary or part of uh, the Salem Media Group, which hosts this program. But um, so, uh, James... Uh, is it two volumes? Could it be? Could it? You know, I I, I kind of thought maybe he got sucked in like uh, Robert uh, Caro, uh, you know, started a book <laughs> on LBJ. I mean, honestly, um, he, you know, in a we- in a way that I would argue, um, he's also this quintessential American for the time period. I mean, he's exactly the up by your bootstraps. Uh, Horatio Alger period in America. I think by the time you get to 2008, uh, I, my argument is that the American dream is shifting on people, but this is the perfect example, uh, uh, of that, you know, and, and in the book, there's a reference to Reagan or, or maybe it was, um, one of the staffers saying, Oh, he'd be the first Italian American. People don't remember. I don't think that that would have been a big deal. That, 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 you know, having an Italian American go on the court would be a, would have been like, oh, those 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 Italian American, you know, those Italians have been here for a while. But that would have been a big deal. The Italian American community um, in the United States uh, in the 1980s uh, made up about 10 percent of the population um, as ethnic groups were were concerned. Um, they provided the Republican Party with its most uh, solid majorities. Um, and so there was a strong political constituency. Um, and the community, the Italian-American community, exploded in joy when Antonin Scalia was nominated to the Supreme Court. It meant more to them, one of Scalia's close friends said, uh, than an Italian-American president would have meant, because the contest for the presidency has always been a theater in which uh, we have seen examples of corruption or uh, moral compromise of one kind or another. But to don the robes of a Supreme Court justice uh, was was uh, uh, was of a different order entirely, enshrouded in mystique. Uh, it was almost holy in nature. And it was an accomplishment that was um, untainted by violence or by corruption of any kind, uh, which even attended uh, the attainment of the World Heavyweight Championship by Rocky Marciano in 1952, an earlier moment of joy for the Italian-American community. Mm. Scalia's triumph in becoming the first Italian-American justice uh, was, meant so much to the Italian-American community at that time. And Scalia rise to greatness um, has uh, letters that Italian-American leaders wrote to President Reagan in which they said things like, we made our case to presidents uh, Roosevelt, Truman, wow. Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon. They went on and on. They said, only they all heard, only you listened. Huh. Wow. Um, th- that's uh, now um, l- I was going to go a different direction, but let me pause. And, and because you're describing that sort of his history and I've, I've, I've often talked about my, my classmate in college, father, Paul Scalia is uh, quoted in here. He's one of uh, justice Scalia's sons. And I will tell you, um, one quick story. I've only met Justice Scalia twice, uh, the late Justice Scalia, once at the ordination of Paul Scalia, my classmate from college. He became a priest. And when Justice Scalia came to St. Louis uh, to visit, I was then the president of the Federalist Society. But at the ordination of Father Paul Scalia, I, I was introduced by Father Paul to his parents, who I'd never met. 
And his father said, nice to meet you. You know, what do you do? And I said, at the time I was in law school, his mother knew exactly who I was because I had studied in Europe, in Italy um, as a layman and had become very close with Father Paul. And she honed in on who I was in this, like, you know, an ordination of a priest, the celebration afterwards, a bit like a wedding reception. So there's a huge crowd and there's lots of people and family and it's festive. And she honed right in on and said, you're a good friend to Paul. Thank you for that. Or some phrase like that. And it struck me at the time always has how extraordinary clued in she was in your book people describe her as her family does her husband does as not just a great mom and wife but very very uh bright and very capable Uh, tell me about that so in scalia rise to greatness uh there's a quote from one of scalia's daughters saying that anyone who knew my mom and my dad knows that (laughs) my mom was if not as smart as, dare I say it, even smarter than my dad was. And she said, you wouldn't go to my dad for math help. Um, (laughs) uh, Maureen Scalia is um, an extraordinary uh, woman uh, and an extraordinary figure in American history in her own right. And as Gene Scalia, the the justice's son and and later a a cabinet official, uh, said to me in our interviews, uh, you're writing a book about my dad, not my mom. Uh, I can point to a number of Supreme Court justice, uh, justices. I'm not sure I could point you to that many people who could have accomplished what my mom did. Raising mm-hmm. nine children uh, while her husband was pursuing a, um, a high-powered, uh, intensive career in law, government, and academia. And uh, as Justice Scalia liked to say, nine children and there's not a dullard in the bunch. And she <laughs> did it without much help from me. And we explore in great detail, as no other book about Justice Scalia ever has, uh, the personal side of his life, um, his courtship of Maureen Scalia, his pr- his proposal to her, which has never been recounted anywhere else, uh, the raising of those nine children, um, the, uh, the relationship between Nino and Maureen Scalia, uh, which was rooted in a deeply shared Catholic faith. Uh, this book has more on Scalia's Catholicism and the role it played in his life, both uh, in his youth and thereafter, uh, than any previous biography. I interviewed four of the Scalia uh, children, not a majority in Supreme Court terms, of <laughs> course, but still a significant um, right. a significant addition to the record, including Father Paul Scalia, Right. Uh, who described for me the influence of, of the Jesuitical training that young Nino Scalia received um, at Xavier High School, a rare hybrid of a Jesuit academy and a military academy, mm. uh, and then at Georgetown, where in both of these institutions, young Antonin Scalia emerged as valedictorian. Um, and the Jesuits have changed over time, but back in Scalia's youth, they were known for their rigor. Um, and all of this played into not only Scalia's development professionally, but the development of his character. And as he recounts in Scalia Rise to Greatness, Scalia's father, a Romance languages professor, uh, once said to him, uh, brains and muscles can be put up for sale. The only thing that can't be put up for sale is character. And Scalia's character, which was impeccable to the day he died, the FBI investigations, he he underwent four of them in 14 years, all came back with the most superlative testimonials, uh, interviewing hundreds of people who knew him over decades. Uh, We should all uh, hope one day if the FBI were to investigate (laughs) us, and I've been in that position, uh, for the record to be so superlative in nature. But um, uh, the, the, uh, the Jesuitical influence in Scalia's life um, he never 
Uh, I think let's just leave it there and I'll let you guys do an edit. Well, Oh, yeah. Well, and and um, so we're talking again with uh, James Rosen, the chief of White House correspondent for uh, Newsmax about his book. As he mentioned, it's uh, uh, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. Um, Regnery uh, Publishing uh, did this one. Uh, I want to before I, I, I do want to get to a, a conversation a little bit about uh, his sort of jurisprudence or at least how it developed, because it says something about him also, I think. But first, um, across these across these early days, so up to 86, there's. Other names, you know, we knew people know that follow him closely. They became uh, friendly with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They became great friends that did start on the D.C. Court, uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. But one of the characters that I was so interested in um, that seemed to play a large role at crossing over uh, was, I guess, Judge Larry Silberman, who mm-hmm. was this. Again, people knew that Justice Scalia, although Bork was older, they would have been linked in sort of time together around the 80s and appointments. But this Silberman really played a a large role in uh, in in that period or in Scalia's success in a way. Judge Lawrence Silberman died uh, in late 2022 or early 2023. Judge Lawrence Silberman passed away only recently uh, in his 80s. He really had two careers. One, uh, as the Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice uh, during the post-Watergate period when he was essential to rebuilding the integrity and morale of the Department of Justice. Um, Also as an Iron Curtain ambassador in the 70s uh, and as a key figure of influence in the orbit of Ronald Reagan at the time of his campaign and, and thereafter. And then Silberman had an extraordinary second career as a judge on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, Mm -hmm. uh, often described as the second most powerful uh, bench uh, beneath the Supreme Court. Uh, And at one time, you had on that same bench a kind of murderer's row of legal talent (laughs) that included Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia, and Larry Silberman. Silberman is considered the most important judge who never became a Supreme Court justice. It was his opinion, for example, that Scalia uh, upheld as a justice in D.C. versus Heller, right. which, which right. Uh, finalized and secured the right of Americans to carry a handgun. Right. Um, and Scalia and Silberman were best friends for 40 years. Silberman could talk to Scalia like nobody else. In Scalia Rise to Greatness, we have great stories of Silberman addressing Scalia's "you dummy." Right, <laughs> the right, two right. of them, the two of them, uh, busting each other's chops over red wine with ethnic jokes and so on. But they were kind of like mutual consigliere's. And uh, as each of them rose through the ranks together as friends, they would confide in each other about uh, whether they should take given jobs or reject them, and so on. And there's nobody who had a more intimate view. No co- a colleague or friend than Larry Silberman, and he's interviewed at length in uh, Scalia Rise to Greatness. He really was an important public servant um, who deserves uh, greater credit for his contributions to American law and society from this from the 70s onward. Uh, again, we're, we're talking with uh, James Rosen, the chief White House correspondent at Newsmax. Uh, he's a, a veteran uh, correspondent and uh, best-selling historian. Has written a book on uh, uh, Watergate and uh, John Mitchell, as well as one on Cheney. And the book we're referring to is Scalia: Rise to Greatness, out from Regnery. All right, now in on th- page three forty-one of the book, there's a comment uh, that was that is uh, original reporting to you of just of uh, Rehnquist. I think he might be. 
not yet chief justice, but he says to um, Justice Scalia, quote, Nino, don't worry so much about the reasoning. Just get the right result, end quote. And uh, the, the, you write the, the the remark haunted Scalia the rest of his life. Fond though he was of Rehnquist, that was not the kind of justice Scalia intended to be. Now, the context of that is I want to ask is people will say that don't follow too closely. Ah, you know, Justice Scalia and others, they're originalists. And they're originalists. Well, within the originalist fight, there was this, this, I mean, within originalism, there was this question of original intent or original meaning. Mm -hmm. And if you were original intent, in my opinion, uh, you end up having to come up with what you think it was. It's a sort of a conjecture as opposed to meaning, which is at least closer. You look at the words. And of course, Scalia popularized original meaning, but Bork and others were uh, original talking about originalism, original intent. That that seems to me to be where the nub of what <laughs> Justice Scalia did that was, I don't know, categorically important. Justice Scalia, and before that, when he was Judge Scalia on the Court of Appeals, uh, really um, launched a, a revolution uh, in this country that has profound importance even today. And we, we document all of this and make it understandable in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Uh, Scalia came of age in the 1970s and 80s, uh, and um, at that time, um, judges um, – let me put this a little differently. As a Supreme Court justice and earlier as a court of appeals judge, Scalia launched a revolution in this country, which is profound in its impact still today. Um, Scalia addressed the central question, what is the business of the judge? What does a judge do? You have two parties standing before a judge arguing about the law. They could be the government, a corporation, two individuals. Uh, and it's the judge's job to say what the law means. Uh, and until Scalia came along, um, the, the fashion at the time uh, was for judges to decide what the meaning of the law was based on what they thought it should mean or what the legislative history showed. Well, what did the lawmakers who passed the law say on the floor of the House and Senate uh, in their debates? And what did they put into committee reports as the bill and the law sort of progressed towards final completion? That gives us an example of the legislative intent. Um, Scalia came along and thought that was crazy, in essence. Uh, <laughs> right. Scalia, Scalia championed something called originalism, and more specifically, the term you used, original meaning. When deciding what a law actually means, uh, how to interpret a law, uh, Scalia argued that we should be governed by uh, the original meaning of the law as it was widely understood to mean at the time it was enacted. Uh, and he would say if the founding fathers in writing the Constitution or a bunch of congressmen or senators in drafting a particular statute, um, we should discover some secret paper that tells us what their intent was all along, we really shouldn't care. The intent is the actual law that you voted on and that the president signed into law. And how do we find the original meaning? And Scalia's answer to that was textualism that the best guide to the original meaning of the law was the plain meaning of the text itself. Nobody voted on a committee report. Nobody voted on a House debate. They voted on the text of a law. And so Scalia, in championing originalism with textualism, as I say, and Scalia Rise to Greatness as the kind of metal detector to help you find the original meaning, that was a revolution in, in, in the law. 
And although he never persuaded a majority of his fellow justice, justices to become originalists, um, Elena Kagan, the liberal Supreme Court justice who had a deep friendship with Scalia, uh, famously said, we are all originalists now. And that was a testament to Scalia's enduring influence. So by shaping the way that judges interpret laws, Scalia also shaped the way that lawmakers go about passing laws. And um, this has a profound impact on every aspect of American society, from race relations to um, national security to First Amendment law, etc. When we decide how to interpret the laws, um, you're, you're getting at the heart of the enforcement of those laws. And Scalia often said, that he would come to decisions as a judge and a justice that he didn't like very much, but that he was required to come to because that's what the original meaning of the law was. Scalia, as an example, was very pro-law and order. Uh, but when it came about that uh, the the state in, in criminal prosecutions, let's say of sexual assault cases, was using tape-recorded testimony instead of live witness testimony, or when a screen would be placed between uh, the, the victim of the alleged sexual assault and, and the defendant on trial for it, um, Scalia held those to be violations of the Sixth Amendment right to confront your accuser. And by the plain meaning of the law, confront means face-to-face that, that a tape-recorded testimony or a screen be- between the victim and the, and the alleged uh, offender, uh, that didn't allow for an actual confrontation under the Sixth Amendment. Um, and so even though that was, um, uh, those were rulings that, that cut toward the benefit of criminal defendants and not the police and the law enforcement uh, organizations, Scalia nonetheless reached those decisions because he was using originalism and textualism. And at, uh, of course, critics said that Scalia wasn't always faithful to this ideology, that sometimes, and they would cite Bush v. Gore as an example, um, he uh, used non-originalist methodology or came to a conclusion that uh, was driven ideologically, etc. And Scalia's answer to that criticism was, um, maybe I'm not perfect in my application of my, my method, but at least I'm giving you a scorecard that enables you to judge me, whereas those who believe in a living constitution, those who believe that the constitution should expand and contract with the times and with new developments, well, the, here you just will have judges basically grafting their own policy preferences onto existing statutes and saying the meaning of that statute should be expanded or contracted to account for today's modern problems. And that was a judge who was untethered to anything but really their own vision of how they wanted society to be governed. And of course, that's not what judges are supposed to be doing. Uh, James Rosen, again, is our guest, uh, the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. Uh, James, I want to finish with that question. You can broaden it out to Rehnquist when he says, just get the right result. And then um, and then uh, he mentioned uh, Kagan and, and uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, he would have uh, he did understand Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia. We're talking again about the book Scalia Rise to Greatness from Regnery uh, by James Rosen, that he he understood that you need to persuade your colleagues you know, that it's not happening in a vacuum. Now, I don't think he changed his position to get there, of course, um, but others sort of do or he he kind of, I think, in his in his own way, believed they would because he didn't think they were grounded the same way he was. And therefore, was he persuasive or and and did it did it work when it came to uh, his description of, or his remembrance of Rehnquist's comment and then these interactions with other justices? On the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Scalia was renowned for his persuasive powers, his affability, his intellectual force, the liveliness of his prose style. Uh, And it was predicted at the time of his confirmation for the Supreme Court in 1986 that 
that Justice Scalia would prove equally persuasive. In the end, that proved untrue. Uh, the other justices had also come to the Supreme Court with very entrenched ideas about the law and how to go about interpreting the Constitution and different statutes, uh, and they weren't really up for much persuasion. And one difference between the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court that, that Scalia found when he got there and which disappointed him was that there was a lot more give and take between the judges on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals than there was between the justices on the Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, the conference where they get together and decide how to how they're going to vote on cases and assign who writes the uh, majority and minority opinions and so forth really wasn't a debate at all. It was just an announcement of where each justice stood. Mm. And that was disappointing to Scalia, who cherished argument. Um, but uh, the 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 book Scalia Rise to Greatness, as I say, this is the book that Scalia fans have been waiting for and all students interested in a more accurate history of his life and legacy. Uh, it's bursting with new information, new documents. Uh, you will see the birth of the relationship between uh, Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit, which plays out in previous, previously unpublished memoranda and correspondence flying back and forth between the two of them that reflects their sparkling wit and their deeply held ideological views. Um, and you will see uh, do documents and draft opinions from Judge Scalia and uh, documents he wrote when he was working on CIA activities in the Ford administration, documents he wrote way back in the early 70s when he worked for a new uh, organization called the White House Office on Telecommunications Policy, mm -hmm. uh, in which Scalia predicted the rise of the Internet um, uh, and helped usher in the telecom revolution with his legal prowess. Uh, so all of these phases, there's new documents. One of the revelations of the book involves uh, Scalia's relationship uh, with the man with whom he rose on the Supreme Court, uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist. Uh, the two had known each other for about 15 years when uh, Rehnquist was elevated to chief and Scalia took Rehnquist's seat on the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, and so Scalia never uh, got to the Supreme Court without it first being the, the Rehnquist Court. So he operated uh -huh. under Chief Justice Rehnquist along with the other associate justices. But before Scalia got to the Supreme Court, when he was still a uh, a court of appeals judge, he and Rehnquist used to play poker together. And uh, the story is told for the first time in Scalia Rise to Greatness that uh, then Justice Rehnquist said to his friend Nino, you worry too much about the reasoning, just get to the right result. And of course, as we were just discussing about Scalia's application of originalism and textualism, for Scalia, it was all about process. It was all about the reasoning. It was the result could go one way or the other and might go against Scalia's own preferences. But right. that's what he considered the heart of integrity for a judge. Scalia told this story to students um, late in his life when he was teaching uh, summer courses in the law at exotic locales for the Federalist Society and other yeah. institutions. And um, after he died, I saw in a panel discussion of the friends of Nino who convened at the University Club in Washington that one of them said that there was a Republican justice who had said this to Scalia. Hmm. And when I called that person, he didn't want to tell me who it was, but he said, maybe I can get one of the other students who was present one of the students who was present for the course to discuss it with you. Oh, you and go. that's what happened. Huh. And this individual had his original notes, uh, had his notations of Scalia saying that. Um, and as you say, it was not the kind of justice that Antonin Scalia intended to be. For him, reasoning and process was paramount, the outcome secondary. 
Well, uh, James Rose and I agree with you. It's a book that people that are uh, fans of Justice Scalia, the late Justice Scalia, should um, should read because there's a ton in here, and I was really impressed as I, I was uh, working through it. So thank you for that, and I'm uh, congratulations on the book, and I, you don't need to be congratulated on your next book, but I'm glad you're going to keep uh, after this, and maybe it turns into like uh, James, uh, to uh, Caro's uh, LBJ. You may be, like, you'll, be, you'll be 92, and you'll be working on your, your uh, Scalia volume. So, <laughs> But thank well, you for the time. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. All right. At James Rosen, everybody, the chief White House correspondent at Newsmax and the author of Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. Uh, James Rosen, it's Regnery Press. I'll put it all up on social media. We will take a break and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by opposing radical feminism and representing a traditional conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. If you've ever been a school teacher, you probably know that one of the most popular questions a teacher gets is, when am I ever going to use this in real life? Although Vice President Kamala Harris has not done much for American youth, she has finally given them an excellent answer to this age-old question. Harris decided to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the horrible Roe v. Wade decision by delivering remarks in which she had the gall to quote a very heavily edited quotation from the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration has long been a rallying cry for life-affirming activists for obvious reasons. The first right ever enumerated by our founding fathers is none other than the right to life. I'm sure you've heard the quote before. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Vice President Harris bizarrely misquoted that we are each endowed with the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness, as she tried to make the case for more abortion. The whole time, she was hoping that no one would know that she had cut out the part of the quote which talks about our right to life and the fact that all of our rights come from our Creator. Perhaps you consider this to be a blunder on her part. After all, who doesn't know the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Sadly, I fear that more and more children brought up in our public schools will not know enough of their history to be able to spot neutered quotes and blatant lies that are done for political gain. That's the answer to the question of when will I use this in real life? To safeguard your liberty, you have to know your history. The founding fathers left a rich legacy of liberty for us to live up to. Never let anyone take that away from you. Whether you are in school now or far older, each of us needs to make ourselves students of history. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. When America turns our back on our Christian heritage, we shouldn't be surprised when biblical precepts like honesty, kindness, respect, justice, and freedom are abandoned. At phyllisschlafly.com, we still believe in rights endowed by our Creator. If you agree, find out more at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I'm headed out. I was meant to tell you the other day, I'm going to Boise, Idaho to be a speaker at uh, one of the uh, county Lincoln days. My friend, State Senator Tammy Nichols, invited me to come out and I can't resist. So I'll be flying out and I will make sure to get the show in. Don't worry about that. But uh, let me tell you, I plan to talk about um, the pro-life movement and where we are what's happening. And my touchstone will be a book called How the Republican Party Became Pro-Life by the late Phyllis Schlafly. And it describes how, starting in the early 1990s, there were forces that wanted to make the Republican Party pro-abortion. And there was a group of people led by Phyllis Schlafly who fought it off and fought that off. And it was systematic in the Republican Party at the platform, at the, uh, uh, annual, uh, the, the, uh, uh, every four years conventions in other aspects of it to fight off this effort to go pro abortion, pro choice, moderate. And it's one of the great successes of the last 25 to 30 years in terms of grassroots organizing, in terms of getting conservatives to not only be correct, to be right, but to be smart and savvy politically. So it, my reason I'm telling you that is I've been reading it. I've been looking at it. I've been thinking about it in preparation for the speech in Boise, Idaho this weekend. And I thought, if you'd like a copy of that book, email me. Email me, ed at phyllisschlafly.com, ed at phyllisschlafly.com. I will send you a free copy. I won't charge you for shipping, handling, anything. I'll just send you a copy. So ed at phyllisschlafly.com. You can get a copy of that book. Thank you, as always, to the great Noah Dingley, our producer, Ryan Height, our associate producer, and all that he does for us. We'll be back next week. It's Ed Martin. Excuse me, back tomorrow. (laughs) Forget about next week. We'll be back tomorrow. Getting ready to go to Boise. I'm already thinking about the weekend. And uh, talk to you then. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.